We'll be starting a new series in a couple weeks uh, that we'll be hearing more about uh, next week. But we finish up this series that we've entitled The Fugitive. We've been spending 10 weeks looking at the story of Jonah, this Old Testament story that many of us have an understanding about. Uh, If you've spent any time in Sunday school or in church, you know the story of Jonah. All the great lessons that come. But I hope and my prayer has been that throughout this uh, 10 weeks looking at this very uh, famous story, that we would learn something new. That we would be transformed uh, by the teaching uh, that we've learned from this great book of the Bible. That we would understand that there's a part of us that's a lot like Jonah. That we find ourselves just like Jonah running uh, from God so many times. That even though God has called us to things. Thank you, sir. You're a good man. Two cups. Wow. That's, wow. Do I look that dry? Um, I gave uh, Josue knows he's a preacher, and I gave Josue the look. I need some water, and he uh, he brought me a whole gallon of it. So, uh, but there's parts of us that are just like Jonah that we uh, are told what to do. We don't like what God says, and as a result of that, we run away from God. There's a part of us uh, that we see uh, in Jonah or Jonah in us when we recognize and see sometimes the hatred, uh, the anger that we have when it comes to other people who are not like us. Of course, Jonah struggles with the Ninevite people, these people that are enemies of his and his people, uh, the Israelites. And so we've learned a lot about the story of Jonah. And when we look at this book, we understand that there are two main characters in this story. The first main character, of course, is God. God is probably the most uh, active of all the characters in the story. The second one is Jonah. Jonah, of course, is the next character that's a part of it. And while there's characters that uh, come in and out of the story, in chapter 1 we see the sailors that Jonah finds himself with on the ship as he's heading on the Mediterranean See, the second chapter, we see the uh, introduction of the character that gets a lot of play, and that is the great fish, the whale that comes and swallows up Jonah, and we learn a little bit about that whale. And then we, of course, know about the people of Nineveh. And so there seem to be more than just two characters, but the main two characters, of course, are Jonah and God. Now, that's a great reminder for us. Even before we get into chapter 4 this morning, we are reminded that while we may live life amongst many people, and there may be many characters even involved in the ministry that we do as Christians, the most important relationship that we have, the only two characters in our life that mean anything of eternal value is our relationship between us and God. Jonah could have done a lot of things and been involved in a lot of ministry in his day. But the only relationship that really counts for him on the judgment day was his relationship with his God. You see, Jonah didn't serve the sailors. Jonah didn't serve the whale. Jonah didn't serve the people of Nineveh. Jonah was called to serve God. And we too are called to serve Now, we may have a lot of people under our care, under our ministry that that we serve. But at the end of the day, just like Jonah, we serve an audience of one. And while everybody can be clapping and speaking of our uh, acclamations and accolades, we need to understand that at the end of the day, it is God and his opinion that matters the most. And so we see Jonah, uh, the story begins with God and Jonah. And we see that it's going to end with God and Jonah. Now, there's been a lot of stuff that has happened in this story 
Over the last 10 weeks, we've talked about a message coming to a prophet, Jonah. Jonah hearing that message and not liking the, um, the uh, calling that God has given him. And as a result of that, he says, I don't want to go to Nineveh, God. I'm going to go the opposite direction. And he heads out what many scholars believe is Spain, across the Mediterranean Sea. We know that during that great voyage, a great storm comes, and it causes great fear and trepidation in the lives of the sailors and Jonah himself. As a result of some interaction, they learn that Jonah is the cause of the storm. And Jonah tells them, for this storm to stop, you need to throw me overboard. And that's what they do. They throw him overboard. Jonah thinks he's going to die. But God saves him by his grace and mercy, summons a great fish to swallow him up. And for three days and three nights, Jonah sits in the belly of that great fish. It is at that time that Jonah starts getting right with God. He starts to uh, turn to God and call out to God in his desperation. And at the end of that three nights, after that time of getting right with God, God summons or or tells the fish to uh, spit Jonah out. It's at that point that, of course, chapter 3 begins. Jonah's given a second chance to go to Nineveh. This time he does, proclaims a message, and what happens? Nineveh changes. Even though they were wicked and a vicious people, through the message that Jonah gives, they change. It says they believe God, they call for a fast, and from the greatest to the smallest, they all turn to God. Even the king gets involved and pronounces um, issues, decrees, and proclamations to tell everybody to get on their knees, to fast from food, and to put sackcloth on to show their place of humility before an awesome God. And so we come to the end of the story. Now, if you haven't read ahead, I I know I would wonder, and I would say what was going to happen is, based on this incredible revival that takes place, we're going to see chapter 4 being the the afterglow of Jonah's ministry. When I was a teenager uh, here in the youth group at Village, uh, we used to, on Sunday nights, have what we called afterglows. And afterglows was after the Sunday night service, the youth would usually go to someone's house or, or go to a restaurant, and we would just have a good time, just kind of enjoy the, the last part of the weekend and get ready for the week ahead of us. And I'm not sure why it was called an afterglow. It was after church, I understand that, but there was never any glowing going on. So I never quite understood that, but that's what they called it, and uh, it involved food, so I was there, of course. But But nonetheless, you would think that there would be this basking in this glow of this revival that has taken place. A whole city full of sinners has given their lives over to God. They believe God and they start living differently. Now you would think a prophet would be so incredibly excited about that. You would think that the prophet would say, this is what I live for. To be a prophet who goes into a city and is allowed to help change lives... This is the greatest thing. This is what I was made to do. But what we're going to learn today is that is the farthest thing from what Jonah is thinking. Even though God has used Jonah to do incredible things, what we see is Jonah being brutally honest with his God. And in fact, he begins to argue with his God because he's mad. Not only is he mad, but we're going to learn how really angry Jonah is in chapter 4. And it's a reminder for us that just because God uses us to do things doesn't always mean that that is a barometer of our right relationship with God. You can do a lot of great ministry. 
You can do a lot of great good in the lives of people around you and your heart can be all in the wrong place. We're going to learn that of Jonah this morning. So let's look to Jonah uh, chapter 4. We're going to look at the entire uh, chapter this morning. And just to give you a, uh, a little heads up, my first couple points are long. My last point is lightning quick, so don't get nervous that you're going to be here till the Bears game tonight. So we'll get you out on time. So this is what the Word of the Lord says. Let's stand as I read this for us this morning. This is what it says. But Jonah was greatly displeased. And he became angry. Well, why? Let's go back a verse and just get a context. It says that uh, when God saw what the Ninevites did and how the Ninevites had turned from their evil ways, God had compassion and did not bring upon the Ninevites the destruction he had threatened. So then we see, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his comfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, Jonah said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Father God, we come before you. Lord, teach us the truths from this, this incredible book. This book that was inspired by your Holy Spirit, penned by uh, your author, intended to change the lives of people centuries after it was written. Father, change us through this word. First, change the speaker of these words, and then change those who hear it. That we will be different, that we will obey, and that we will see the world as you see it, and not through our lenses of our own lives, experiences, and circumstances. We pray that this would be to your glory and honor. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated.
In Jonah chapter 4, we are given an interaction between God and Jonah. The interaction is one where we see Jonah beginning to get very angry with God. Have you ever found yourself at a time where you've lost your temper when it came to God? That the circumstances of your life, for whatever reason, you, you begin to point your finger at God and say, God, you're the reason for my calamity. God, you're the reason that I'm not happy with life. I know there have been times in my life that maybe I've not gone as far as Jonah has, but my heart has been there. Not happy knowing God is in control. God, why, why don't you change those things? Why don't you fix them so I don't have to face the calamities and troubles that are coming my way? And we see in chapter 4 that Jonah is mad. In fact, we, we see that it says that he was greatly displeased. And before I get to what that means, we need to understand what made Jonah so mad. Why is Jonah, after the greatest revival in the biblical narrative, why is it that he is so angry with God? The first thing we need to see in the text is that this issue of anger, and it's something that we don't see readily in our uh, English translations. In verse 1 it tells us that Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. The Hebrew word there for displeased, and the idea then of becoming angry, is one Hebrew word. It's the word ra'ah. And this word ra'ah in the Hebrew, it even sounds like an angry uh, phrase. It sounds like you, as you would articulate that in any kind of volume, you know, rah, it's an it's a angry-sounding word, and that's what he is. He's mad. In fact, Eugene Peterson in the message says that he uh, said this, he was so furious that he lost his temper. He lost his temper. He's, he's ready to go off on God because God has not done what Jonah would have done. And as a result of that, two pictures are given. The first understanding of this word is as it was used when you were offended by somebody. Jonah is angry because he has been offended by God. Now what in the world had God done to offend Jonah? This is the amazing thing of Jonah's uh, life and circumstances. Jonah is offended because of what happened in the verse prior to that. That God saw what the Ninevites did, that they turned from their evil ways, and this is what offended Jonah, that God had shown compassion on the Ninevites. That seems kind of odd. I'm offended, God, that you're a compassionate God. You're too nice of a God, and because of that, I am offended. It says that because of this, he becomes angry. He becomes furious. That's the second part of this word. The idea here in the second part is not just that he's offended, but he's fuming mad. He's so furious, he loses his temper, that he can't even think straight now, and that he begins to reveal to him, uh, to his God exactly where he's at. Do you know that when you argue with your spouse or your children or, or a co-worker, uh, psychologists tell us that your most transparent and honest dialogue happens in arguments. Did you know that? That we are more truthful in our arguments than we are in the regular course of conversation. Why is that? Because our passion is so uh, is raised so much that as a result of that, we unload on people and we don't have, if you will, the governors in our mouth that will withhold some of the things that maybe we wouldn't say if our passion wasn't so high and elevated. 
And so Jonah shows us, in fact, Jonah chapter 4 shows us more about Jonah than the rest of the book combined. We see the heart of Jonah. And Jonah doesn't like God. He's angry with God because God has not done what Jonah wanted him to. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty. The story, of course, is about a Buffalo newscaster who's down on his luck. Things aren't going well for him. And Bruce, as a result, the main character, doesn't get mad at his circumstances. He doesn't get mad at maybe some of the things that he's done. But he begins to point the finger at God. And at one point in his life, he's so angry where his life has gone that he begins to give this discourse to his girlfriend about how angry he is with God. And these are some of the phrases that he says. He says, God, my gloves are off. He says, I have nothing left. I have no bird. I have no bush because God has taken away my bird and bush. He says, God, all you are is a mean kid with a magnifying glass sitting on an anthill burning ants. And finally at the end, he says, smite me, almighty smiter. He's being transparent. He's angry with God. And so what he does is he articulates things. Well, the next day, Bruce meets Morgan Freeman, who plays the part of God. And what does Morgan Freeman, God, say? The next day, Bruce comes up and meets God without knowing he's God. And he says, well, who are you? And God says, I'm the one. I'm the divine being, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. Bruce says, oh, I see where this is going. And God says back to him, Bruce, I want you to know I'm God. This is Bruce's response. Bingo, Yahtzee. God, is that your final answer? Our survey says you're God. Bing, 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 bing. Well, it's nice to meet you, God. Thank you for the Grand Canyon. Good luck with the apocalypse. And oh, by the way, you stink. He hates God. Why does he hate God? Because his life isn't the way, isn't going the way he wants. He feels betrayed. Why does Jonah feel betrayed? Why do we feel betrayed? Well, the reason why Jonah felt betrayed is because Jonah's a prophet, given the message that God has given him to go to the Ninevites. And so what does he preach? Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's the message. Well, what does that mean? We know from the text that what that meant was that destruction was going to come upon Nineveh. And so after 40 days is done, Jonah is angry. Why would Jonah feel betrayed and angry? Because that never became a reality. What it means is that God, according to his actions, if you will, made Jonah, I don't like to use this term, but it's the only term that I have, a false prophet. He's a false prophet. He said something was going to happen and it doesn't come to fruition. He says, you sent me into the city, if you will. You sent me into Nineveh to preach that it was going to be destroyed. And Nineveh stands here today and you made me look like a fool. So he feels betrayed. The next reason why he's so angry, in fact, this word uh, angry literally means that he was displeased with great displeasure. This idea that he's furious with God. It comes as a result of being betrayed. And then notice what he does in verse 2. He justifies his actions. He prays to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee Tarshish. He says, all right, God, you got me. I knew you were going to do this. 
And the reason why I ran from you, he's blaming God to recognize this. The reason why I had to disobey you was because of the following. Now, now think about this. The reason he gives is he says is because you are a compassionate and loving God. What kind of excuse is that? Jonah says, all right, the reason why I sinned against you is because I knew you were such a great and good and loving and compassionate God. And so that's why I disobeyed you. You know, we do that so often as believers. We get angry with God. We're angry because maybe God has betrayed what we thought was the right direction for God to go in. And so then we go to God and we say, well, the reason why I didn't follow you, God, was it's your fault. It's not mine. I would have done it, but I knew that's how you would respond. And so I went the other way. And so he blames God for his sin. The final thing that we see is that he hated his own life. Now, I know this isn't even in the outline yet, so bear with me for a moment. But he hates his life. Here there are three instances in our text where Jonah says he would rather be dead. He says, I'm so angry. I'm so frustrated with you, God that I don't want to live life anymore. He says, I'm tired of it. Notice what he says. Now, oh Lord, take my life for it is better for me to die than to live. Now let's put that into context. I'm talking with God and you are the audience. And I say, God, because you're so compassionate, because you're so loving and so filled with grace, because I knew that's how you were, And because you were gracious to these people in Nineveh, let me die. Now let's put that again into context. We bring a missionary, one of our missionaries up here. And they come and they say, we're missionaries to Africa. Let's say we bring Crystal um, uh, Keene and and her husband. I can't, why can I not remember? Matt. Matt and Crystal Keene. And they come up and they're serving in an orphanage and in a village in Africa. And they come back on furlough. And their response, we say, hey, Matt, Crystal, how are things going? And they say, you've got to be honest with you. Uh, nobody knew God in that village when we first came. But we ought to tell you, something happened a couple weeks ago. And right before we left, everybody turned to God. Wow, that's amazing. That's great, Matt and Crystal. And you, what would you do if Matt and Crystal said, no, it's not? To be honest with you, we don't want to go back. In fact, we want to die. Why would they want to accept God and his message? What makes us so angry? We can't tell you how displeased we are. I would tell you if that was one of our missionaries' responses, we would have a meeting afterwards and we'd have to be really asking, do we continue to support these missionaries? And yet that's what Jonah is doing. He's saying they all believe they called for a fast. And I am so angry I'd rather just die. This guy needs a shrink. He really is struggling here. Well, what brings all this about? What causes him to be this angry? We need to understand what his beef is with God. We see what it is. It begins with his own heart because the first thing we see in our outline is we see Jonah's hatred for the wicked. We see Jonah's hatred for the wicked. Why is he mad? Because he hates the Ninevites. He hates them so much that he doesn't want to see any good to come to them. He wants to see them destroyed. Now, I want to make something very clear. We as Christians should hate wickedness, but we are called to love even the wicked. There's a huge understanding that needs to be placed there. We do not love sin, but we are called by Christ himself to love the sinners. 
Christ said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Christ spent a lot of time with those who we would call wicked. Tax collectors, prostitutes, the lowest of the lows when it came to the sinners in his day Christ spent time with. But what did this hatred lead him to? Understand that when you feel something about the world around you, in your heart, you say, well, it'll never come out. Nobody never knows my feelings. Nobody's ever going to find out. Well, Christ said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When we have something inside, even though nobody may know about it, some hidden feeling we have, anger or resentment or, or bitterness or hatred for someone or something, we may think it's inside and that it'll never come out. The problem is, is what I learned in kindergarten, garbage in, garbage out. And so maybe Jonah hadn't articulated his anger and hatred towards the Ninevites, but it comes out. Notice a couple ways that his hatred comes out in verse 5. Notice what the text says. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. So what do we see? You say, Tim, there's not much there. I want to give you a couple thoughts as I ask questions of what the text said. Number one, we see that Jonah, because of his hatred, stopped serving prematurely. Now you say, well, where do you get that in the text? Well, let's look at what it says. It says that Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. We can, we can assume that Jonah, because of where he was coming from, that he entered Nineveh from the west. He came from the west to Nineveh, which is modern-day Iraq now, that he came from the west near where Israel is at, across Syria and Jordan, uh, over to the nation of Iraq. As a result of that, he would have headed in from the west side of the city, assuming that that's the direction where he came from, and then he finds himself at the end coming outside of the east side of the city. Now we know that it said that the journey would take a three-day visit, which it means that to go and see all parts of the city, to be a part of it, to articulate the message verbally to everybody in the city, it would take three days. Now we don't know when Jonah uh, gets done and whether uh, this is three days after he gets into uh, Nineveh or a full 40 days, we're not sure. But what we do know is, is that he proclaims the message and everybody believes. Now you would assume, wouldn't you, and I'm, I'm speculating here with this point for a moment, you would assume that if everybody, if you went into your neighborhood and told the neighborhood that they needed to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, and every person comes out as you're walking the sidewalk, and they all say, we want to accept, we want to accept, and you just keep walking. And you keep saying, yeah, you need to accept Jesus. You need, And the whole neighborhood wants to trust Christ as their Savior. And before you even move on, or as you continue to go on, you never stop to sit there and move and work through their lives and their situations. You would think a prophet who has his message being accepted by a whole city of people would stop and say, all right, there's a lot of work to be done here. The people are excited about what they've learned. You would think Jonah would have set up a whole little Bible institute there. That he would have then began to teach and proclaim the full counsel of what God had shared to his people in Israel. And the importance for them to obey and to turn to God. And how they were to live for God. Nowhere in the text does it say it. 
It says he did his job, and when his job was done, the message he had been given, he walks out of the city. He's done. That reminds me that as Christians, so many times what we do is we fulfill the command that God has given us, but nothing more. We do the bare minimum. Why would Jonah go and do that message? Because he knew, God, if I don't listen to you again, you're just going to mess with my life again. You're going to bring me, throw me back in the water, run after me, chase me, bring calamity in my life. And so I better just do what you say. But when I'm done, that's it. I'm not going to do anymore. It's like an employee that I have. Uh, he hasn't been very happy with me as of late. And, and in the second that I tell him that he's going to be done with work, he's out the door. Even to the point two days ago, he was cutting fruit for an event that I was asking him to do. And I went to take a phone call. And when I came back, the watermelon was sitting there. The knife was in the watermelon as if he cut the knife at 5.59 and the clock struck 6. And he says, I'm out of here. I fulfilled my work. I talked to him the next day. I said, couldn't you have cleaned up? He said, it was 6 o'clock. You said I had to work till 6. I said, okay, I guess you're right. You did work till 6, but, but your heart wasn't there. And that's what we do with God so many times. God says I got a witness, so I'll witness. God says I got to give, so I'll give. But I'm only going to do the bare minimum. I'm going to do it out of duty, not desire. You need to understand something. The revival of Nineveh, in all intent and purposes, we see that Jonah did it out of a duty, not out of the desire of his heart. He didn't want to see the Ninevites come to know Christ, but he did it because he knew that's what God was requiring of him. We serve God many times like Jonah did because we think, well, that's what God's calling, and if I don't do it, God's going to be a mean God with a big fly swatter and swat me because I haven't listened to what he told me to do. And so we do the very minimum that he asks. The next thing that we see is that we find ourselves separating ourselves from others around us. That's what he does. Notice what the text says. It says that he goes out, and he sat down at a place east of the city, and that there he made a shelter. Well, why did Jonah make a shelter? Well, we can't beat him up too bad. He needs a place to stay. But don't you think, again, this is speculating, but I think it's seen in the text. If you are the prophet that brought the message that changed the whole city, don't you think that Jonah was a celebrity by the time he was done preaching the message to the Ninevites? He's the one that preached it. The king himself says, hey, in light of what this messenger said, we need to change how we live. We need to give up our wicked ways. Don't you think in all of the houses and places to stay in Nineveh that Jonah would have had someone who would have shown him hospitality? But what does he do? He heads out of the city and says, I'll build my own place. Why? Because I think deep down inside he hated the Ninevites that he didn't even want to spend time with them. I don't want to be with them. The least amount of time that I have to have with them, the better. I'd rather go build myself a house east of the city, build myself some sort of shelter from the uh, elements of the, of the weather than to deal with those people any longer. He's got a hatred for them. So much that he's distancing himself from them. He's creating separation. And that's what we do with people we don't like. We find ourselves, we see someone in the room that we don't like, and I don't care if that room's 12 by 12, we're in the opposite corner of wherever that other person's at. We don't want to talk to them, we don't want to interact with them, and that's what Jonah's doing. Jonah's separating himself. 
Now, what does this have to do for us? Well, many times when we interact with the world around us, especially those that we don't like, the the people that we feel are too wicked for Jesus even to save, we separate ourselves from them. We, We say, well, we can't interact with them. A great question to ask uh, of us as Christians is, can you name a group of people that you have constant and ongoing involvement with that are unbelievers? Do you have interaction in all your friendships? Can you name people that have uh, no desire for God? Are you interacting with them on an ongoing basis? And I don't mean that you're forced to do it. A kid says, well, I go to school, it's full of sinners. I don't mean that. That you are personally plugged in to people who have no desire for the gospel. Or do you find yourself separating yourself as a result of that? Now, there's some smart thinking when it comes to separating ourselves. We want to make sure because the Bible says that bad company does what to character? It corrupts it. So we need to recognize that that's a true principle. But Jesus was full of perfect character and he shows us the model on how we can live and still have good character even though we interact with people and so it's a very slippery slope we have to be careful but we don't want to find ourselves being separated from those who need to hear the gospel and so here Jonah's angry he doesn't want anything to do with these Ninevites and it brings him to one more thing and that is he becomes a spectator He becomes a spectator. Notice there are three words that talk about this idea of being a uh, a spectator. He says this in verse 5. There he made himself a shelter. The first one is he sat in its shade. Number two, it says he waited. And the third one, to see what would happen to the city. So now he's separated himself from the city. He's created enough distance. Well, why would he separate? The first reason, I believe, is because he hated the Ninevites. The second one is he thought deep down inside, God may still change his mind and destroy the city. And so what he does is, and I love how the, the Veggie Tales uh, video does this, uh, Khalil and Jonah find themselves looking out uh, at Nineveh, and they separate themselves. They're sitting on a hill waiting to look, and they sit there. He's got a chair, and he tells his little worm friend, if you will, we need to get a little farther back because we still may get singed. When God brings the fire, we, may, we need to make sure we're far enough from it that we don't get burned. And yet, what is he doing? He's watching it take place. What is he watching? He is watching for the destruction of others. This is sick. This is morbid. This is someone who wants to watch people die. This is Jonah, the prophet of God. And what does he do? He says, I want to put up a lawn chair, and I want to watch the destruction of the city. You say, Tim, I would never do that. That would never be a part of who I am. I love people enough that I don't want to see them die. And I would say, but let me ask you the question. Do you love them to the point that you don't sit on your rear and watch them walk the road to destruction? Do you have enough love in your heart knowing that destruction's coming? It may not be 40 days, it may be 40 years, it may be 80 years, but it may be tomorrow. And the question is, you know that the Bible says if a person does not bow the knee to Jesus Christ, that the moment this life ends, they will die, they will be judged, and because of their place that they have not put Christ at, that as a result of that they will face weeping and gnashing of teeth in a place called hell. 
And the question is, are we like Jonah watching that happen or are we proactive in going and doing all we can to preach the gospel? Now I need to make something very clear. We do not have any authority to force someone to trust Christ. There's nothing we can do. All we can do is present the gospel of Jesus Christ to an individual and leave it between them and God. But have we done that? When I was thinking about this point this week, it was during this point, it was uncanny. My office overlooks a window on the second floor of our house. And during that time that I was thinking through this point, my whole neighborhood walked by. Oh, it was like everybody said, yeah, but all needs an illustration. So we need to walk by his house so he can be use us for an illustration. And the question was, is what influence have I had in my neighborhood's life? Or have I just watched them fully knowing that the Bible says that if my neighbors and friends don't know Jesus, then they're on their way to hell. I better do something about it. Jonah's a spectator. He sits back and watches their demise. And many times we do the same thing as well. So what does God do? This is how Jonah responds to God. He's angry with God. He's furious with God. And you would think that what God would do is God would sit there and, and God would articulate to Jonah very clearly that he's the boss and that Jonah needs to sit down and shut up and, and listen to what God has to say. But that's not what God does. Because notice, the second thing we see is God's hesed, God's hesed toward the world. Now you say, what in the world is hesed? I'll help you understand that in a moment. Jonah goes off on God. The Ninevites have pursued uh, God, and Jonah's mad, he's angry, he's telling God off and how God has missed it, he tells God how much he wants to die, and so what does God do? You think God would yell back, that God would get angry, but notice what he does. He shares this idea of hesed. This is seen in the text numerous times, and it's seen in verse 2. Look at what it says in the NIV, it articulates it this way. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and hesed, abounding in love. If you've ever been to Aurora or know anything about Aurora, there's a place called what? The Hesed House. The house of abounding love. What a great, great place to be called for a shelter, a place where people can get food, uh, who are hungry, a place of abounding love. The reason why God, Jonah is angry is because God is in a, a love, uh, has a love that is abounding. And so what does God do? God doesn't yell and scream. God loves. God loves. I wonder after all the yelling and screaming that Jonah does, if God's sitting up there and in some ways laughing like a father, sitting there saying, oh, oh the, the stupidity of my son. One of the times that I most got angry with my, my, my dad, we were in a discussion one time, I was 18, and I don't endorse this, so please understand them using this as an example. I thought it would be cool to use a four-letter word towards my father. I thought it would get him. My dad's an elder in a church, he, we never heard bad language in our house, and I thought 18 years old, it's good to just rattle my dad, and so I give him the mother of all bad words. And I sit back and say, how's he going to respond? You know what my dad did? This is great if your kids ever do this to you. My dad stopped and he called my mom. And I thought for a moment, I got him. 
They're, oh, I really laid into them. I dropped the nuclear bomb on my parents. Now they'll know they can't mess with Tim. My dad calls my mom and he says, Michelle, Michelle, come here, hurry, quick. And my mom comes in, what's going on? He says, look, our son is a big boy using big boy words. Wow. He says, this, this is great. He says, how oh, man, you Wow, you've become an adult using all these profane words. And I felt like the biggest moron. <laughs> because I thought I was going to get him. I thought my belly aching and my anger and I, I'm going to get you, Dad. And my dad sat there and laughed in my face. He's like, you're an idiot. I knew it when you were talking before. Now I really know you're an idiot. And, and, and then, I mean, you proved it. And I wonder if God was sitting there listening to Jonah saying, I knew you were an idiot, I love you, but you're a dummy. You really, you, you, you got some weird thinking going on. I remember thinking I'd gotten them. I wonder if Jonah said, see, I told you this is how you are, but notice what happens when we see God deal with them. It usually isn't that God laughs, like many times our fathers do when we do dumb things. But I think he grieved. I think he grieved over a man that he had invested so much time in and given so much grace and mercy to. And he says, you still don't get it. You know, I wonder when we look at God and point our fingers at God and get angry with God, and God is abounding in his love if we don't grieve him at some point. And we grieve him by, by saying that we, we still are ungrateful for all the grace that you've had. I, I shared with the first service, we need to understand when we point our finger with God, against God, we need to understand that God has given us life and breath and the ability and the brain and the anatomy to point that finger at God. And so when we point our finger at how bad God is, God has graced us with everything we need to tell him how bad of a God he is. And that's why the book of Romans says that the fool says in his heart there is no God because the very nature of you being able to distinguish between whether there's a God or not proves there is a God. And so when you say there isn't, you're using everything that God has created in you to say that you haven't been created. And that makes forth a fool. And so God shows his love. He doesn't, get, he doesn't get angry and yell back at us, but he shows love. How does he do it? The first thing we see, his hesed comes out in the time that he gives people to repent. God didn't give the Ninevites what they deserved. He should have destroyed them. That's what they deserved. They were sinners. He should have destroyed them for what they had done, but he doesn't. He gives them time to repent. Remember what uh, God did with the sailors in chapter 1. They find themselves in a great storm. And what does the text say? In chapter 1, it says that they cried out to their own God. I want you to think about for a moment, Tim and Amanda on a cruise. And a great hurricane comes up when we're on the cruise. And we're on the deck of the cruise boat. And the thing is just toppling and turning all over the place. And Amanda's standing by me. And she starts yelling out, Tony! Tony, help me. I'd be like, who's Tony? Uh, am I not your husband? Shouldn't you be saying, yelling, Tim, Tim, help me, help me. I, and I, don't, I don't want to talk about you. A Tony. And so what happens? The sailors are crying out to their own God. Doesn't God have a right to get mad? God says, why are you crying out to him? He can't do anything for you. Who is? There's no God that you're crying out to. And if he had been like a, most husbands would be, he'd say, you know what? Yeah, let your God find something for you. Let your God help you out. You're on your own, but what does God do? He saves them from their calamity. Jonah rebels against God. 
And what does God do? God doesn't kill Jonah. God is, God is gracious and loving. He gives him, even when he's at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, a fish to come up and swallow him to keep him alive. You need to understand something. When we argue with God, when we get angry with God, God doesn't sit there and say, I'll get angry back. He says, let me love you. Let me love you more. Let me show you grace. It can be put this way, quite frankly. I'm yelling at you, calling you everything in the book. And you saying, you know what? It sounds like you're getting a little parched as you're yelling at me. Let me give you a glass of cold water so you can continue on. Does that mean that God's a doormat? No, he's not. But God knows when his job is to repay for evil. And God knows it. But God right now is showing grace to his child, Jonah. The next thing we see is the tenderness he shows Jonah. Notice, like a loving father. His son's belly aching with him. And so what does God do? God doesn't yell back. Notice what it says in verse 6. Then the Lord provided a vine and made it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. He gives him a gift. Here we are. We find ourselves not happy with what God has done in our lives. And we look at the one thing that we're unhappy with and we throw away everything else that God has done. And God just continues to give his loving kindness. He ministers to us. That's what he does with Jonah. He says, Jonah, it looks like you're getting hot. Jonah, it looks like you need some shade. I'm going to give you the shade that you need. Here's a vine. It's going to take care of you. Now notice, he gives it for a short season. Sometimes God gives us things to teach us. He doesn't give it so we can just sit back and enjoy it and and, and live life that way, but he gives it to teach us. Now notice the final thing that he does. His hesed involves his teaching about the priorities of life. What happens? He talks about this vine. This vine that grows up, it gives shelter, it, it produces some comfort for Jonah, and Jonah sees the next day because of a worm that the vine dies. And he's angry again. And what does he do? He starts crying out about how he wants to die again. Three times this loony guy says that he wants to die. And he wants to die because of a vine. And so what does God say? God teaches him some things. Notice what he says. He says here in verse 9, But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Jonah says, I do. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Here is the story that he wants us to know that is so applicable to us today. He articulates this. He says, Jonah, you're worried about the vine. The vine was temporary. And yet you're not worried about the people of Nineveh that are permanent. They're permanent people. These are long-standing individuals. And so what does he teach us? We as Christians so often pursue the temporary things, get all worked up about the temporary things, that we never think about the permanent. Notice the next thing that we see. It is something that Jonah had nothing to do with. Jonah had not toiled for it. He had not helped it grow. It came on its own through God's of course, intervention there. And so what does Jonah say? Jonah says, I'm grieving over this vine. And yet God says, you didn't do anything. And yet you're grieving over it. And yet you don't care about the city of individuals whom I have tended and watched and cared for and ministered to and given them all that they need, including you to be the messenger who would articulate the message that I have for them. 
Finally, he shares that you care about the insignificant things while you're not concerned about such an important city to me. He says you care about a stupid vine, a stupid vine you had no involvement with that was only here for 24 hours and you don't care about the great city of Nineveh. I know I'm short on time, but let me ask you this very fundamental question. What are the temporary insignificance and things that never, you've never had a hand in that you're more concerned about today than the people around you who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? What are they? You say, well, it wasn't a vine. It may be a car. It may be a hobby. It may be a, a pursuit, a, a certain amount of money in a <clears throat> a checking account. It may mean a whole list of priorities and, and uh, promotions. They're insignificant, they're temporary, and they're not what God is concerned about. So what does God finish up with? He says with this book, he ends it with a question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? What are we to understand from that final question? The final question is, is if we don't agree with God, then there's no hope for the world. If we cannot agree with God that people are important to God, that we should be involved with people, then there's no hope for the world. And that brings me to my final point. And that is, is that it is the only hope we have for winning others to Christ. We have to agree with God. We cannot argue with God on this thing. And so what are we to pull from this story of Jonah? How do we close this whole story out? We have a choice. We can get angry with God. We can be disobedient and run away from God. Or we can do four things. If you want to see your world come to know Jesus Christ, if you want to see God use you to be an impact in the world around you, then four things must happen. Number one, it must involve messengers who are obedient. And so what you need to learn, the first lesson of Jonah that we need to understand is when God calls you to something, you do it. When God says jump, what is your answer? How high? We need to respond with obedience. We don't need to be like Jonah who doesn't like what God says and says, I'm going to go do my own thing. It doesn't work that way. God calls us to something, we are to be obedient. Number two, We need to understand that it must involve God's message of repentance. We have to recognize that God isn't just calling us to be a nice neighbor or to be a nice uh, employee or co-worker, that we're just to do nice things. God says that it must involve the message of the cross. Jonah didn't just go in and set up a nice little uh, after-school program for the Ninevite children and think change would come. He went and shared a story, or a message, if you will, of repentance. It's time to change. We need to do that as well. We need to share it with the world. But you may say, Tim, you don't know my neighbors. You don't know my family members. They are wicked, wicked people. Well, we need to always remember the miracle of the new birth. We need to understand that no matter how sinful an individual is, God still is able to save them. We sang about it. God is what? Mighty to save. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that God could change the Ninevites in our lives? That he could change them no matter how wicked they are, how sinful they are? That if we are obedient to the call of Christ and sharing the gospel with them, that they may come to know Jesus Christ? And finally, we must have the mind of Christ. Jonah had major issues. He had major issues in his thinking. Number one, he was rebellious. Number two, he was a racist. 
And number three, he refused to love those whom God loved. Is that where you're at today? For whatever reason, you find yourself hating people? Uh, During the first service, at the end of the first service, uh, an elderly woman walked out of the service as we were exiting the building. She began to cry. And she said, Tim, uh, I need to confess some things to some people. And right outside the doorway, she told probably uh, uh, maybe 10 or a dozen people in full voice, she articulated the following. She said, when I heard Ted Kennedy died, I was happy. I said, I'm glad I hated that man. I didn't like what he stood for. And she said, what I learned today is that Ted Kennedy were my Ninevites and I was Jonah. And she said, I took pleasure in his death. And she says, I need to confess that. I am so broken over it. I need to tell as many people as possible how sorry I am for my hatred. You say, well, I'm not like them. I don't like that lady. I think there's a part of Jonah in all of us. And if we live that way, my friends, please hear me. If that's how we respond as a church, if that's how we respond as individuals, then we should close the doors and we should tell nobody we're a believer because we will do more harm to the gospel of Jesus Christ than we will ever do good. We have to love as Christ did. We have to go to the most wicked of people and share God's love and his story of grace because if we don't, then there's no hope for them and there's no hope for the world. Are you going to be Jonah? Are you going to be one who is changed knowing that God is the great changer of people? Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it has taught us this morning. Father, I pray that we would be changed because of this book. Lord, that as we have looked over these last months of what your word has shared, that we would be a different people, that we would respond differently to the world. Lord, there is no question there are Ninevites in our life. There are people that that for whatever reason we are angry with. There are people that we hate. Sadly, Lord, there are some that we've never met before, just as Jonah hadn't met the Ninevites, but only heard about them, and he hated them. Lord, forgive us for our hatred. Forgive us for not showing the love that you have, for judging people while you are the only judge, for condemning them when you're the only one who can condemn. Lord, I pray that that would challenge us, It would challenge us to look at them differently. To look at our world and have great compassion just as you looked over the world and you love the world that you sent your only son. And Lord, it's with that grace that we have been able to come to you. It is because of your son that we can taste eternal life. So let us, Lord, not hold that for our own and separate ourselves from the world around us, but to go to the highways and byways and invite all to come to the great banquet that we call this thing salvation. Challenge us, Lord. Put people in our lives that will stretch us to share more boldly the gospel. The message that changed the Ninevites is the message now fulfilled in Christ that can change the world. It's our only hope. It's through your power and strength, through your spirit that we can do it because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world.
So send us forth into this world, Lord, being the salt and light, being a city on a hill that can never be hidden so that your light will shine and be seen by all men. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.